Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest is a Philadelphia native and activist. For more than three decades, he's worked at the ground level with Black youth, families, and communities with a focus on the issues and challenges faced by young Black men. He earned a master's degree in management and urban policy analysis from the New York School in New York City and his bachelor's in economics from Morehouse College. He also received a certificate in community-based economic development from the Center of Community Research and Service at the University of Delaware. He's founder and principal partner of Shamari Kazi. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania and co-author of Why Our Children Hate Us, How Black Adults Betray Black Children. He also hosts a radio program called Groundings on Word Radio that airs at 1 p.m. Friday afternoons and 6 p.m. Sunday nights. Let's welcome today Mr. Eric Grimes, a.k.a. Brother Shamari, to the program. Brother Shamari, how are you doing today, sir? Greetings, Mr. G. How are you? I'm well, man. I'm well. I know you're super busy, man, um, and you had a lot action-packed day, man. So thank you for, you know, taking out the time to speak with us, man. Thanks for reaching out and, uh, you know, inviting me to your program, and I look forward to the conversation. Yes, sir. And I do want to say, man, um, I uh, got your book probably 10 years ago, man. Like, it's crazy thinking back. But when I started teaching, man, I was like overwhelmed. Like, you know, the school I was at was predominantly black and uh, Hispanic. And um, there's a lot of challenges, man. And I was like, I don't know if I could do this. And for some reason, like I, I went to some program and they had your book out. And I'm like, yo, this looks pretty interesting. Let me get this. So I got the book. Uh, flipped through and I was captivated, man. And it was the first time like I was looking at black children from the lens of black children and not from the lens of like me as a black adult. You know what I mean? Um, so it really changed the way that I looked at black children and changed the way that I taught. And so I do want to thank you for for that um, you know experience that you gave me, man. Well, I appreciate that. You know, we have, we have some people who the book chase them out of teaching. So it's good to know that it helps some people with their teaching as well. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can, appreciate I, that. I can see both sides, man. I can see both sides. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, uh, just uh, getting into, you know, kind of the work that you do. I know you do a lot of community work. Um, you do a lot of the groundwork, you know, hence your show Groundings and everything. Uh, but I kind of want to start it off from your upbringing and kind of what got you into, you know, the work that you do now and what brought you into consciousness and everything. So I know you grew up in like the church and everything, um, but also too, like, what was your school and, and home experience like growing up? And uh, walk us through that, you know, that, that, that okay. child state that you were in. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I don't know how much time we have. have we got that, time. <laughs> we got time. You know, yeah. So I, you know, I'm from Philly, grew up in Philly. Um, Robinson Street in West Philly, to be exact. And so, you know, I grew up in a household with my grandparents. So my mother, my younger sister, um, my grandparents, my aunt and her child at the time. So it was about seven. And then I had another younger sister. So it was about eight of us, I guess, if I do my math. Mm. West um, Philly, I'm thinking like Fresh Prince right now. 
Yeah, no small <laughs> house. From, yeah, every time that comes on, it's like the national anthem for anybody from West Philly, right? West Philadelphia, born and raised. And so, yeah, just that typical kind of childhood, um, you know, father absence, the basics, you know, father not around. Um, you know, we moved when I was about 10. Actually, I was nine. And so we moved from Robson Street into an apartment with me and my two sisters, my mother and her living boyfriend mm. so that that was that was kind of when you know the the storyline changes a little bit it moves from like you know everything is cool and you feel secure you know growing up in one situation and then you you know you go into the other one and then you know you start to get introduced to domestic violence and other things mm. and so it kind of changes the trajectory so you know, how, how, how old were you when you know kind of that stuff was going on uh, nine. Yeah, we, we moved when I was nine. And so, you know, growing up on Robinson Street, I was kind of like, you know, I was like athletic, smart, mm-hmm. um, cool, all at the same time. So everybody kind of looked out for me. And, you know, I had a little nickname, Baba Louie, because I had the big head, like even like I do now, you know, back, <laughs> back then there was a, a cartoon called Quick Draw McGraw. That might be before your time. I feel like I've draw, seen that before. It was kind of like a playoff of the uh, Long Ranger and Tonton. So mm. Quick Draw was like a, a donkey, or he was a white donkey that was kind of like the marshal. And he had a sidekick um, whose name was Baba Louie. Mm-hmm. Baba Louie was short and, and skinny with a big brown head. And mm. uh, so for some reason, because I was skinny and small with a big brown head, everybody called <laughs> me Baba Louie. That was my nickname growing up. You know, so, you know, just, you know, as Baba Louie, man, everything was cool, you know, and, and then moved, moved and, you know, that whole kind of nine-year-old, the whole kind of world changes because now you're introduced to domestic violence. You don't have the security of, you know, your community and your neighborhood. And then when we moved again, uh, you know, just even, you know, it became a, a different thing, man. So, you know, like I said, I was the only male in the house. So a lot of the stuff that goes on, you got to figure out for yourself. And so mm. that that begins the journey of, you know, you just in your own brain a lot around it. What did you make of that in your own brain at the time, like the domestic violence? Like, did you try to justify it or was it like something that made you angry or? Oh yeah, it's more the angry part, man. I, um, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I was going to kill, you know, Mm. in high, at the time you called me a stepfather. In hindsight, he was just really my mom's boyfriend, right? Just Mm -hmm. having to live in the house with his, uh, but they weren't legally together. So, you know, but yeah, I spent a lot of time. Uh, so, and I'm sharing this only because it sets the, t- the tone for why our children hate us. Mm. Both Butch and myself share a background where, you know, for me, that whole resentment and anger around that formulated a lot of my childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a story that's, you know, most would say even more, more challenging than mine, where he actually in a situation of domestic violence, you know, witness his father kill, shoot and kill his mother. Wow. And that, that's your co-author, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's around the same age at the time, 13, when this happens in his world. Yeah. So it's kind of those similar backgrounds that when we meet each other later in life and we start sharing and talking, that's the energy behind why we wrote Why Our Children Hate Us, because we could both look back on our childhoods and look at what that adult betrayal looked like and felt like. And how even as as grown men in their late uh, in their mid forties at the time, those memories and those you know people like to use this word that I don't like, but I'll use it for the sake of the conversation. Those t- early childhood traumas mm-hmm. still formulate the decisions we were making as grown men 
you know, the challenges we were had we have with friendships and relationships, dealing with young people, vilifying our young people. And a lot of that is unresolved stuff that happened to us in childhood. And, and you know, it happens to a lot of black people. And right. if you're not careful and you don't process it, it leaks out in your parent in your parenting. It leaks out in your teaching. It leaks out mm-hmm. in your counseling or your coaching. You know, and that that's mm-hmm. really why we wanted to bring to fore the book, these kind of implicit ways that we sell our children out because of uh, this recurrent sense of betrayal that we 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 are passing down because we also were the benefactors of that. Mm, man. All right. So nine years old, this is occurring. Um, was that kind of the same time that you were going into the church quite often? Because I know yeah, you matter, grew up in the church. Yeah. Matter of fact, the church was kind of like the refuge. Right. So mm-hmm. I get introduced. We go to church. I, I was about 10 at the time. And we, entered, you know, went to a small church at Philly Sanctuary Church at the open door. Um, it was a woman pastor. Right. So Reverend Dr. Audrey F. Bronson, uh, she's in her 90s now, but. You know, at that time, I think her model as a female pastor of a church, Mm -hmm. um, it really, I think, inspired my mother to kind of find her voice Mm. in a way that then led to her kind of realizing that, hey, I I don't need to live like this. I don't need to suffer this type of abuse. I think the model of that a female pastor leading a church dealing with all of the uh what people would call chauvinism that you experience in the church at that time you got to remember this is back in the 70s mm. um you know female pastor is no big deal today right but at that time you know people were you know we would, we would go to church sometimes and people wouldn't allow her to preach from the pulpit wow but she just had a lot of audacity to her and i think my mother seeing that gave her a backbone and a sense of strength. It definitely inspired me in a lot of ways because I had a lot of leadership opportunities growing up in the church. Got mm-hmm. a lot of chances to sing on the choir, usher, but also like do lay messages, lead Sunday school. So that's when I kind of realized this thing around leadership and teaching and education was something that I was groomed groomed for very early as a result of that experience. Gotcha. Did, did your mother like eventually like leave that or was that like some just something consistent like as far as the domestic violence and what was happening at home oh yeah yeah with the, by the time i was um and it's funny man you know this sounds crazy but you know by the time i felt like i was big enough mm. 14 to turn 15 to actually actualize my plans to 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 deal with my stepfather uh you know, she came to her senses and, you know, I came back one summer from visiting my aunt and them in, in New York and he was gone. Um, so she she found her fortitude to make that decision, that right decision. And it probably saved me from ending up in the juvenile system for, for you know, stabbing or shooting or hurting, hurting, hurting somebody. Because it definitely was I was. You know, I tried to intervene when I was 10, 11, 12, but I, I, I didn't have the strength behind me. So I would take a lot of L's. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I was practicing. I was practicing. <laughs> yeah, 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 man. Um, one can imagine, man, like what, what type of pressure that put on you, man, especially being the only man, male in the house. Um, yeah. How did your mom present that to you, though? Like, how did she present what was happening to you? I, I wouldn't say it was presented well in the moment. Mm. Um, you know, especially, I mean, for me, I could never wrap my brain around the recurrence. So Mm. if, 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 
if you get people who intervene and they take L's on your behalf and, and dude is gone, how does he end up back in the house in two weeks or a month mm. later, right? And, and that happened more than once. And so right. that's probably the thing out of it all that you begin to grapple with. Because to, to, in my mind at the time, it's a decision. You're choosing him over your children, mm. you know? And so you got his children who, who are in harm's way and you keep letting the harmer <laughs> come back into the house that's supposed to be a, a safe space for us. So for me, man, I, you know, people would tell me all the time, I, I definitely shifted from a outgoing, you know, artistic, fun-loving little boy to this very kind of aloof, distant, you know, not, not real. Some people would even say anti-social. I'm not, I never really got into doing bad things or running the streets or whatever, but I was definitely, I didn't trust nobody. I still to this day don't really trust a lot of people. It takes mm-hmm. a long time for me to warm up to people. And I know all of that is a result of that kind of, that kind of moment. So. Man. Um, yeah, man. I'm sorry you had to go through all that, man, but I'm sure it's behind the reason you wrote the book and um, you know, some, some of the understanding that you have about black children now, man, seeing, Definitely. you know, your own experience. Um, so Kind of like I guess at, at the high school level you started playing basketball like that kind of oh no I was not I was I was uh I was a football dude so my two oh, sports football, that football. I was actually good at was football and um and baseball oh okay but, okay but but I got you know it's funny man I don't know if you play any sports but sometimes you got to listen to your coaches and your your advisors sometimes when you play sports. And then you want to play at around the way. And then you, usually your coach will tell you, don't don't play pickup games. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so not listening, you know, we, we, we used to go up playing tackle football on cement, on asphalt. And, and, and no you know, equipment. Like, yeah, no equipment. <laughs> no sense either. No brains in hindsight. And I, you know, I hurt my knee doing that one day. And that was kind of like whatever aspirations I might have had, that wasn't going to happen at that point. So you know, I, what I, position? What position were you playing in high school? Oh, yeah, man. I would, I would have been playing in the DB area, cornerback safety kind of stuff. That was my thing, you know, so. Okay, got you, got you. So I know one of the things um, I've heard you mention on previous program was that, um, you know, like one thing that got you in the whole community thing was that you uh, did a church program um, helping kids out, like after, you know, after school, whatever, with their home. Yeah, and, stuff like and that. that was a basketball program. That was, that a was deep, through basketball. Robert R. Watson, um, and we started that, he started at the church, right? As a brother, community legend now, you know, he's an ancestor now, uh, passed uh, actually right early on in the COVID time, mm. uh, last year, uh, March, April. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you know, he and a brother in the church named, um, Deacon Ames, I can't remember Deacon Ames' first name. I think it was Willie. They, you know, Deke um, just wanted to start a basketball program, not even necessarily for the boys in the church, but we would be included, but as a way of doing community outreach to the boys in the community where we were, mm-hmm. uh, which was also West Philly, right around 60th and Walnut. So, you know, because I was in school, I knew how to write. You know, and, and I went to Central, which was at the time one of the best high schools in the city. It was an all boys school. So I actually, you know, Deke was kind of like my 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 Jegna, you know, people call it mentor. But, you know, I used the word Jegna at the mm-hmm. time. Man. And so I literally was with him and Deacon Ames and helped them write out and lay out the program in my brain at the time. I was not a basketball dude, but it was a basketball <laughs> program. 
That's so, so my my role would have been providing academic tutoring for the guys, homework help. But you know, when they came to the program, they didn't want to, they wanted to spend no time doing homework. So <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really have a role once I helped them set it up, except to join the team and try to learn how to play basketball. So that's that might be where you got the basketball ideas from. Yes, sir. That that's exactly where I got it from. Um, so I'm guessing that that was like your introduction into like community building and everything. So like. What were the 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 kids in the program like? What was their response to you? I knew like y'all was close in age and everything. Like, yeah, I was a corny dude, man. I ain't gonna <laughs> lie. I could dress up the story if I, you know, I could dress it up now, but I ain't gonna dress it up. I was the corny dude because again, all right. So it's, I got to give you a lot of backdrop for it, yes, man. sir. You know, number one, my grandparents, my grandmother, grandfather, mm-hmm. were the 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 uh, in the church. The people who cleaned up, they call them sextons. Mm-hmm. So they were the sextons of the church when we moved from the little church to the big church. Mm-hmm. But they were old, so it was too much work for them. So guess who they called to help them? <laughs> so after high school, every day, I would have to go and help them. I would have to go from high school and go right to the church and help them clean up. Mm-hmm. So the church has also had a, its own church school there. And so a lot of the dudes who were on the basketball program were also in the school at the time mm-hmm. and they would see me helping my grandparents clean the toilets and, and so by the time i finished that and then would go down into the basketball program and be trying to play ball with them so number one i can't play <laughs> i go i'm i'm kind of quote unquote smart i go to the good school i'm not from the direct neighborhood and i'm the dude who be cleaning the toilets that they just peed in with my grandparents Mm-hmm. So you you write the rest of that story. You, and my last name is Grimes. So, you know, you know, <laughs> I, I can't even act like I was a cool dude in that. I, I, you know, every day I had to go through some kind of bull crap with those brothers. So, oh, man. But did you view it as something annoying or did you like actually see it as like, yo, I'm giving back to these guys or attempting to at least? You yeah, know? you got to understand from my perspective at the time, man, it was part of the ministry. Like I, mm-hmm. I, that was my ministry. And everybody told me at the time I was going to be a minister. And so, again, that's a whole other thing. I'm Mr. Dudley Do-Right. You know, these are dudes who that they go to a school or they're from around the way, but they weren't necessarily the Christian bulls. So it's just a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I never I never was traumatized, but I, I you know, I, I, I had the pledge to belong because it, it wasn't it was not it, it took a lot for me to kind of stay in the mix with that because it, it wasn't like it was a, a, a comfortable meet and greet on site. It didn't work out like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So um, you go through high school and then kind of make the decision that you, you want to go to Morehouse. How did that all come about? And what was that, that experience like once you got there? Man, you you peel it back a lot of layers, man. Like the, the more I, I, I went to Central's all-boys school. Um, I was very good at math. And I had my favorite teacher at Central. Central. <laughs> it's funny because telling this story is how me and my lady met. But my favorite high school teacher at Central's name is Mr. Diano. Mm-hmm. He's my math teacher. So Mr. Diano had this thing where he would give your tests back in the order that you scored. Right. So you, the way he would give your tests back, you knew who got the lowest, <laughs> you knew who got the highest. Uh-huh. If you got your test last, that meant you had the highest score in the class. And so every now and then, man, I'd be the first dude to get my test. I'm mean, the last dude to get my test back. And so, you know, that was my that was my thing. Mr. Diano was cool, little short Italian dude. And so you in your senior year and you're talking about what colleges you're going to go to. And everybody wanted me to go to school for engineering. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, had me applying to a lot of places. And and I had never really heard of a black college before because my family was not, you know, I don't have any, my mom and them didn't go to college. So this college thing was new. Some people start, were starting to talk about going to a black college. They call them HBCUs now. I don't mm-hmm. think that's what we called them back then. It was just like a black college. They were talking about going to Lincoln or Cheney or whatever in Philly. And I remember, oh, yeah, I want to be around black people. I think I'm going to go to a black college, too. I remember telling Mr. Diano I'm going to go to a black college. And Mr. Diano just in front of the class says, Grimes, don't waste your time. You're way too smart to go to a black school. Hmm. And I remember those words. That's like 40 years ago, man. And I still remember that. And I like Mr. Diano. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know a lot about racism or whatever. I just know I was offended by what he said. And I made up my mind right there that I was going to go to a black school. But I knew I wasn't going to go to Lincoln or Cheney. So I started asking around. And one of the deaconesses in the church mentioned, she said, yeah, you should go to Morehouse College because that's where Dr. King went. I said, OK, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to go to Morehouse College. Because that's where Dr. King went. And I remember <laughs> going home and researching who the heck Martin Luther King was because I had never heard of him. Right. So they like, and people like now can't believe that. <laughs> but there literally was a time when Dr. Martin Luther King was not a household name. Man. And this and is so the 70s, go, right? Yeah. Well, in the, the early 80s right now. It's early 80s. 80s. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I graduated in 83. So this is before the holiday came on board and everything where like overnight he became a overnight sensation and Stevie Wonder did the song and the holiday comes a, a couple years later. But mm-hmm. at that time, I did not know who Martin Luther King was. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. So I did my homework. I found out about the legacy of Morehouse and Dr. King and then all the other people that went there as well. And that's where I ended up going. Mm. That's interesting. So what was your experience there, man? Like, was that the place where that developed your consciousness, like your understanding of what it means to yeah. be black? And- yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, you know, that's a whole one day I'm going to write my memoirs, man, because my my five years at Morehouse and in Atlanta, it's probably the most transformative experience for me. Because mm-hmm. I went hating black men, number one, which is another reason I picked the school, because I still mm-hmm. had that seething anger from 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 the experience with my stepfather seeing uh black men in philly at the time um you know yeah so i went to morehouse because of this idea of going to where i felt would be the mecca for black manhood right Mm -hmm. um and and it lived up it lived up to that and for me it wasn't as much about the curriculum or the school Mm -hmm. it was just about the interactions right so there's a dude there who would always stand outside the lunchroom. His name was Mukasa. He's still alive, a veteran elder of the civil rights movement, man. I don't know if you know who he is. I think uh, his name is Mukasa Ricks, or sometimes they call him Mukasa Dada. Old line mm-hmm. veteran, march doing the marches and SNCC and SC, you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They would just stand outside and talk about our need to link with Africa. He would talk about socialism. And we would all just laugh at him and dismiss him early on, the freshman, sophomore year. By the time junior year rolls around and say, oh, this dude is he's the man, you know, <laughs> and I, you know, I had a chance to really sit and, and meet with old school veterans of the civil rights movement to be in a room and talk with Joseph Lowry, Andrew Young, uh, mm. Ralph Abernathy. You know, all these people were still alive. They were still around Atlanta. They were still involved in politics, worked on Julian Bynes campaign. 
uh, when mm. he was campaigning against John Lewis, right? And John mm-hmm. Lewis ends up winning that, but in a pretty underhanded way, right? I'm, I'm a young boy. I'm, I'm maybe 19, 20 in the rooms uh, when all of this is happening, when Jesse Jackson is first thinking about running. Mm. Um, so, so all of this is happening at that time. And Atlanta was the black Mecca back then, for real, for real. So yeah, more Morehouse, uh, you know, even, you know, taking the class black psychology, that's when I started being exposed to France for nine, Shake Anthony Gio. I don't, you know, there was a Nile Valley conference in 1984 that happened on Morehouse's campus. So we would see some of the major luminaries in the field of, of, of Egyptology and Kemet, Asa Hilliard, people like that. So mm. yeah, man, I don't know that I would have gotten that experience anywhere else. Yeah, you dropped some bombs right there, man. Just to be in that setting yeah. with all of those people, there's and no I way you could come out. going on. Like I was, yeah. I was, I was in my sophomore year. I saw them, mm-hmm. but I had, I didn't have the the knowledge base to understand what I was seeing. Right. So it's in hindsight now that I'm like, yo, I was in the midst of. I feel it's a little bit like Forrest Gump, like where you like just <laughs> happen to be in the midst of all this. You don't know it's a big deal at the time, but you just happen to be there. Yeah, that's that's amazing, man. So that. That kind of, um, you know, kind of woke you up a little bit, just those experiences. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, by the time that you graduate, did you have in your, in your head like that? You wanted to, you know, do work in the community and um, this is what you want to do. Like you want to teach to black children. And, um, you know, what, what was your mind state like at, upon graduation? Oh, yeah. It changed my whole trajectory because I went in. You got to remember, I went in. Uh, I went down to Morehouse for the dual degree engineering program. Mm-hmm. So, so that was my first thing. I was I was going to go into engineering and science and which are now called STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the head of the National Society of Black Engineers on campus. I was the president of the National Technical Association. So I was all in on that joint, right? <laughs> then I changed my major and I graduated in economics. I was going to Wall Street, banking. That's kind of where my mind was. And by the time I was exposed to a lot of the political stuff. I did a lot of volunteer stuff off campus too with the Boys and Girls Club. Mm-hmm. So that's when this whole idea of kind of doing youth development, being a recreation leader, using recreation as a way of, of teaching social skills. I learned a lot of that in my volunteer and off-campus job experiences, man. So by the time I graduated, you know, I, I tried to do the Wall Street thing and I tried to do the banking thing. I was an auditor for a bank. I, I mean, I, I, I did those things. Right. I, I worked for Merrill Lynch and I mean, for Prudential as insurance company. Like I, I did the financial stuff for mm-hmm. a minute. Um, it wasn't it wasn't where my heart was, man. So when I ended up back in, you know, my first kind of youth development job out of college, I was doing like college counseling. Mm-hmm. I was a college advisor and I was I was doing mentoring and college advisement supports, man. And that's when I realized this is what I want to do. And that's been my trajectory pretty much ever since. Mm. Did, did you. So after that experience, did you go and get your master's right away or. Well, I went right away to Howard in the PhD program in economics, but I only spent a year there. I got again. We were there. I, I'm starting to realize how old I am, man. A lot of stuff <laughs> I went through, you might not have a frame of reference, but I was at Howard the year they took over the admin building. Like the fame, it was like a famous take. I've heard about that. I've heard about yeah, that. It was I've on heard. Nightline and it was Ted Koppel and it was it was like a major deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was right after uh, George Bush, the first George Bush, the father, won, won his presidential campaign. There was a dude named Lee Atwater. Mm-hmm. Lee Atwater was the mastermind behind the Willie Horton campaign. 
If you don't know what that is, you go go look it up. Willie Horton was the guy that George Bush used against Michael Dukakis, that Michael Dukakis had let out on some kind of a deferment or something. And he, while he was out, he ended up killing a white girl. Mm. And so Bush was losing the, the campaign and they did this racist campaign, this PR campaign around Willie Horton. And that turned the ties and helped Bush win. Hmm. And then the guy who was the mastermind of that ended up being placed on the board of trustees at Howard and the students went off. Right. Wow. So that's kind of one of the things that the admin takeover was about, along with the fact that the, just the living conditions and the schooling and the curriculum weren't up to par. So at that time, man, the, the, the idea of Afrocentricity and black studies on college campuses was becoming a deal and both Morehouse a lot of your HBCUs didn't have mandatory black studies classes. Hmm. So a lot of that is what we were advocating for. Again, it's the late 80s, you know, do the right thing had just come out. You know, we were hearing that Malcolm X, that the movie was coming out. I mean, people forget how amped and woke before woke became a thing. Uh -huh. you know, the black college campuses were very woke in the, in the mid 80s to about the early 90s, man. It was a lot of black consciousness going on and you know just in the midst of that at howard so yeah that mm -hmm. that really helped me in my development as well got it got it so all that and then um did you uh go on after that like after the howard experience to to go on to get your masters like for your masters program not like, right away man after the howard experience that's when i kind of was dipping my toe in the water with the banking stuff so i worked okay. at a lot of banks um like I said, I, you know, I, first of all, I started out kind of with odd jobs. So I was at Kinko's for a while. I said, you know what? Let me try to bring it back, man. Yeah, let me try to do something in my major. And so I, I went out. I was in a couple of management training programs at different banks and stuff. I was I was at I was working for a bank in Philly called Meridian. Mm -hmm. Meridian became a first union. Actually, Meridian became core states. We, we got acquired by first union. And now First Union was acquired by Wells Fargo, right? So if you mm -hmm. know Wells Fargo Bank, you know, in Philly, I worked for a bank called Meridian. I was a field auditor, a corporate auditor. And I was good at it. I mean, I was, I was like the only black guy, but I was, I was advancing pretty fast because I, I wanted to go into corporate lending. Mm -hmm. But uh, something was like, you know, whatever. And me and my man from Morehouse one day, because he was in grad school at, at Wharton, Mm -hmm. But he was living up in uh, New York. He had just gotten a job up there. So I, I stayed over, visited him one, one day up in uh, New York. Uh, he lived right outside of New York in Jersey. And something just told me while I was up there, um, I remember one of my professors back in uh, Morehouse had told me that if I were to do grad school, he said, you're a non-traditional thinker. You're mm -hmm. not going to make it at any of these traditional programs because your mind doesn't work like that. So if you were going to go to school in economics or anything related, you need to check out this school called the New School. Mm -hmm. They're known for what they call back in the day alternative thinking. Mm. And so, you know, while I was up in New York, I just visited the New School literally on the spot, man. A lady offered me a graduate assistantship. She said, if you come and you start in January, the spring semester, we had a student who didn't show up. Um, or actually said we had a student who showed up, but they're not they're not coming back after this first semester. And so we have a, a graduate assistantship available for you if you want it. And literally, you know, within a couple of days, I was enrolled in a new school program. And that's where I got my master's. Dope, dope, dope. All right. Um, so if we fast forward now, 
um, you are adjunct professor at uh, Pennsylvania. How'd that all come about? And, um, you know, you, I know you mentioned you created kind of your own class and your own program and, you know, you've been doing this work for about 15 years now, but how did that all develop and come about? Yeah, I've been working in Philly uh, with my man Butch on a lot of different programs. So like a lot of what me and Butch came together because we both were working in an area that people might call youth development, social social program development, things of that nature. I, I designed and consulted or worked with a lot of programs in Philly that focused on after school mm-hmm. programs, rights of passage programs for male college advisement, I, I design anger management. So I just design social program interventions, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've been on in the back rooms and on the other sides of kind of seeing the conversations and the, really the bargaining that happens on behalf mm-hmm. of Black youth bodies. You know, we would go into family court, for instance, and we would be in, 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 in I forget what they call it. I call it the belly of the beast, but... <laughs> It was like a room in the basement of family court where before the judges would go in and, 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 and do their court dockets for the day to determine whether children were going to get placed or end up in foster care, or end up in juvenile placement. Mm-hmm. We have almost like this auction downstairs where like some of your major providers would say, hey, you know, we got 20 beds available we need to fill. or We got 10 slots here we need to fill. So it's almost like this lottery auction. So that before the judges go up and and announce sentences, Mm -hmm. they almost have a dashboard in their head about the number of vacancies they need to fill in order for these providers to maintain their compliance levels. Mm. So, for instance, if I if I'm making millions of dollars because I'm running a a, a, a hundred a a juvenile justice hall, let's say, like, I don't want to say names because I'm trying to stay out of trouble. So I call it, let's call it, let's say I call it the Mastermind Juvenile Justice Center. Okay. And, you know, you got a, you got an overnight center where boys get sent because they're, they're having problems in school, they're having problems with their family. And mm-hmm. so they got, they get sent to you and your, your campus, you know, three miles, three hours away from Philly, you know, it's 300 boys and they stay there for nine months. Mm. So your representative, along with, say, 20 other representatives are in this room before the judges dispense with their cases. And they're letting all of the judges assistants know how many beds or how many slots they need to get filled Mm. in order to remain in compliance and get their full check for the month. Mm. And then miraculously, some people would say coincidentally, what we say is intentionally the judges would dispense of court cases and those slots then get filled. So instead of saying to a young person, yeah, you did wrong, we're gonna send you home with your family, or, or, or we're gonna say you can go to this community-based program, mm-hmm. they'll send somebody to nine months at St. Gabe's or nine months at Glen Mills or nine months at Vision Quest or nine months at Mastermind mm-hmm. so that you can <laughs> fill your caseload. And you begin to realize that, hey, that's not justice, that's slavery. Mm. And so me and Butch had been around seeing that happen. And a lot of the people who were transacting like that, the emissaries for these programs happened to be Black people. 
Mm. And so that's where the idea of how, why our children hate us, how black adults betray black children is because we began to see firsthand in the social service systems of Philadelphia that black people in these roles in the name of just doing their job were literally transacting away the future of the very black children that they should have been protecting. Mm. Now, what, what do you say to the black person that's like, yo, listen, um, Brother Shamari, man, I got to feed my family, man. Like, I feel bad for these kids. Don't get me wrong, man. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, man, I'm getting paid for this. Got to feed the family. Got to do this and that and the third. And what could I do anyway, man? This is this is a system, man. This is systematic. Like, what what you want me to do? Uh, and again, that's what I said. Some people who read the book actually quit, man. We in the book we we spotlighted a particular school called CEP, Community Education Partners. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of brothers who were at that school thinking that they were doing a good thing read the mm. book and real because a lot of people don't realize the way this. I tell people like I, we wrote the book from the perspective of letting you know how the sausage is made. I don't know if you ever mm. heard that saying where if you knew how the sausage was made, you might not want to eat it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that we were to, we wrote the book from the perspective of letting people do through small, quick vignettes mm-hmm. behind the curtains to see how what we call social service is actually very similar to the way and the nature of the types of conversations our ancestors probably had told about them during enslavement, right? Mm. You know, I need a, I need this many bodies to work my plantation. I need this many bodies to fill up my jail cell. I need this many bodies to fill up my slave ship. It's the same kind of conversation. Yes, sir. So we were just trying to say to people, hey, this is what you're participating in. Right. And then it's up to you to make the decision what you're going to do with that. Because you're right. Most people, this is my job. Yeah, but your job is an overseer. You do understand that, right? Your job is a slave ship captain. Like, and and so you want to cry about what's happening and what's happening. We want to blame our children, but really our children are products of a system that was designed to destroy them. Mm-hmm. And we're facilitating and helping that system. So we're going to blame anybody. We need to blame ourselves because they're just products of a process and a system designed to create these products called uh, at-risk youth or underclass or things of that nature. And this is an economy that everybody's benefiting from. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, all right, a lot of these guys quit. And um, just from that, that what you just said, I know people uh, might still be scratching their head trying to figure this out. And um, I heard you use a a interesting analogy in a previous interview about black folks kind of being very similar to um, uh, like Toy Story, like that, the way that that story kind of functions, and I thought it was really interesting. So, can you can you share with us kind of what you mentioned just about Toy Story and the <laughs> way in which um, we we um, we function? You know. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, go- I'm going on memory on this one because I use movies and cartoons a lot to try to make these analogies that hopefully yes, sir. You can get. I, I get that from my Bob Adele Jones, um, who wrote a couple books, and that, you know, just the use of media. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I know you, you you even use uh the baby's kids as well. Like in, oh in yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, so. I mean the analogies <laughs> are everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Toy Story one is really about this kind of search for a good master, right? So the Toy mm-hmm. Story thing is really, you know, this idea that you have one 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 owner, right? Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's Billy or Tommy or whatever that everybody likes. Right. Um 
and you didn't want to get into the hands of the evil owner. But you know, at the end of the day, to be a toy is it, it, it see it's predicated on understanding it again, going back in time. There we used to there was a movie out that starred Richard Pryor called The Toy. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. I, I've not seen that one. Right, go check it. Just go check it out because Richard Pryor, I think the lead white guy, I, I might be wrong. I think it was Jackie Gleason, but I'm not sure. Okay. But Richard Pryor would be sitting on this white man's lap and Jackie Gleason would wind him up and he kind of kind of mm. do the, you know, the, the idea of the toy. The toy is kind of like a perform and make me happy on demand kind of toy. Kind of, kind of, kind of thing. And so, when you go to Toy Story, it's really the same kind of an analogy. Where these, these, these toys, if you do their backstory, they actually at the time had their own sense of agency and purpose and who they were as a dinosaur, a cowboy, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then they get to the Billy, and they just become silent caricatures who are only whose only purpose is to please him, mm-hmm. right? Make him happy. Make his right. childhood uh, uh, pleasant and, and joyful and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you know, we 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 are kind of playing that role as well. We're on a search, ever-ending search for who's the good master, who's the person who we're never going to be equal to them. We're never going to be agentic in our own right, but our job is to make them happy. So we, we're on this quest to say, okay, we don't want the evil master. We'd rather have the good master. But at the end of the day, you still have a master. And so that's problematic. And so, yeah, it's just different ways that we see these tropes and these stereotypes and these narratives played out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, our job is to say, hey, you know, I use uh, the Wizard of Oz a lot. Our job is to be Toto. I, somebody got to pull the curtain back on the wizard to show that it's all just smoke and mirrors. Mm. Now, what you do with that reality once I pull the curtain back, mm-hmm. that's up to you. Right. But I'm obligated with my destiny to pull the curtain back mm-hmm. so that we can all say, hey, the power was within you all the time. All of this over here is smoke and mirrors. You're the one who decided to give the wizard your power. You're mm-hmm. the one who decided because the good witch told you to to walk on the yellow brick road and, you know, fight the flying monkeys to get to a wizard who literally has no power except the power that you give him. Mm-hmm. Where in reality, the power was in you all of the time. But it took right. the, the black dog Toto because, again, he's not corrupted in the, in the ways of the humans. He has a different sense. He's like, look, I just want to go home. <laughs> So look, this dude is back here and he's he's he he ain't got no power just like you don't have any power. So y'all can all figure this out together so that we can go home. And that you know, that's kind of the work that we were hoping to get at in why our children hate us to get us to see that hey, if you're going to be angry, if you're going to be mad, don't be mad at your children. Cuz your mm. children are just as much the victims in this as we are. Let's 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 target our anger and our resentment and our work in the right place. Right. That well said. Well said. I know in the book, too, you uh, when looking at the children, you make like a comparison with the baby's kids, um, you know, uh, older flick. And I thought that it was really, you know, a really interesting kind of analysis. So can you share some of um, that, you know, movie ideology with us and why you made a comparison to like black children? 
with the baby. Yeah, I mean, kids. well, again, Baby's Kids was a so Butch Butch wrote the Baby's Kids part of that, and okay, and again, okay. Baby's Kids is a you know is it's a it's a I don't know if, again if people didn't see it, it's something I would suggest people go back and see because mm-hmm. it's part of a litany of of commercial uh, cartoons and movie tropes at the time that was making fun of the dysfunction of what they would call at the time the welfare mother or the mm-hmm. crack addicted, drug addicted black family, right? Mm-hmm. So at that time, you know, black family life was cannon fodder of a lot of black comedic material. Right. And Bebe's Kids was an animated movie. It had an actor at the time, his major voice by Robin, uh, Robin Harris, I think his name was. He died mm-hmm. recently. Comedian, yep. Yeah, comedian. Yeah, um, probably, probably in that group right before Bernie Mac and them. He would, yeah, he would yeah. probably be a mentor of Bernie Mac if, if people had to understand the genealogy. And so he was the he was pursuing a, a young woman in the in in the cartoon, trying to impress her. And so as part of his pursuit, this is kind of like the first date that they go out together with her and her children and him, and they go to an amusement park. Mm-hmm. But there, that her name's Bebe, uh, whatever you know. It's just a whole complicated thing. But he has to go out with with, with her and the children. And the children is a girl that you know they they have. She's a young lady. Mm-hmm. They have her back in the day. We would call it tomboy, right? You know, so she's, she's like a tomboy. But so she's she's kind of you know athletic, but she's cute. Then you have kind of the radical baby. Who walks around? His babies, his his diapers are always stinking. He has his deep voice, uh-huh. you know. And so it's just these caricatures that get played about what black children are, right? And they adultify mm-hmm. black children. Mm-hmm. And so once you adultify the black child, it's easy to make them a target that doesn't have any empathy or sympathy. Mm-hmm. So you got the baby who has the deepest voice in the in in the movie, but he's also the wise one. That's the other thing that that often in these cartoons, the wisdom is packaged in the infant, in the child mm-hmm. to make it immature or infantile. You saw that with uh, Michael in Good Times, right? You get JJ's the clown and you get Thelma's, you know, and you, you get the angry father and, and the, the, the all knowing mother. And so the militant is Michael. Mm-hmm. But he's the youngest one in there, so they're able to dismiss the militancy as just something that's that's childish foolishness. You know, you're just talking out your head because you don't know nothing. Right. And so, yeah, there's this whole pursuit, and the whole a- angst about it is Robin Harris wants to get with the mom, but he don't want the responsibility of being a male presence in these children's lives. Mm-hmm. Until at the end, where he kind of softens, and the children soften. Because they realize that the key to all of this stuff is just to be present, to be proximal, and to show love and affection. Right. right? And so it's this kind of thing where, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, when we say children hate us, it's a playoff of love, right? Because the solution to all of this is for us to return to a spirit of Black love. Mm -hmm. And because we haven't accepted that mission, what we begin to do is to villainize, demonize, dehumanize our own young people. Mm-hmm. As a justification for why we can't love them or don't love them or don't give them as a village the love that they deserve and need. And Absolutely. so that's what we're always trying to you know, get people to call themselves to account for. 
Yes, sir. And um, I also hear like a lot of adults say like, you know, these, these kids nowadays, they're crazy. Like same thing with the babies, kids, you know, like they're, they're crazy. They don't know how to act. Nobody right. taught them nothing. Yeah. I can't even talk to them and yeah. they don't want to fight me. They don't want to shoot yeah, me, whatever go. it is. You know, I can't these say crazy narratives, right? Like I, like in <laughs> Philly, man, I, I hear old men, literally grown people say these kids, you say hi to them and they would, they would sooner shoot you than speak back. And I'm like, that's mm. just not true. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, come on now. So you, you can start to tell these stories they mm-hmm. give you a justification for not being human to black children. Hmm. That's what yeah. happens. Yeah. And I think um, you make a great point um, in the book. Uh, I just wanted to read a quick excerpt in, in a response to kind of that mentality that, you know, these kids, we can't do nothing with them. Um, so you, you wrote, um, try as they may, black adults can't blame their children for our community breakdown. Children are the response and reactions to adult behavior. Children are conceived through adult behavior. Children are conditioned through adult behavior. There's nothing inconsistent about their actions. If they are disrespectful, it is because they have been disrespected. If they are underachieving, it is because they have been undervalued. If they are striking out, it is because they are under attack. The chickens came before the eggs. Black adults came before black children. We either prepare the way or we didn't. We either set the standard or we didn't. Black children didn't wander away. Black adults abandoned them. And for what? To continue serving the master. So I thought that was, yeah, um, yeah like uh, that right it there, man. It it, man. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, since we wrote that 15 years ago, you know, I can't speak for any other city. I know in the city of Philadelphia, where we both worked at the time and still are around, things are even worse now mm. as a result of that betrayal. Um, and, you know, you get a city like Philly where we've had several black mayors, yeah, black, you know, police chief, black fire chiefs. We had black school superintendents, you know, black, black city council. So this betrayal, it wasn't, we weren't just pointing out, you know, in a interpersonal or family dynamic. We have a whole city that literally under all of this black leadership, black children are still hungry, black children are still uneducated, undereducated, still highly incarcerated, still uh, black black families are being disrupted by foster care. So mm-hmm. the, it's the complicity mm-hmm. with this self-denigration, man, that we were trying to bring attention to. And that, I think that that caption you read sums it up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, I know like you've mentioned too, like, um, you know, it that one of the things that we can do that we don't do is kind of teach the children about how to kind of teaching them about, you know, racism, white supremacy and how to defeat it. So I kind of wanted to ask you about how we go about doing that. And I think one of the things you mentioned too, is that we need to teach, you know, the revolution. So what does that entail in regards to us breaking free of some of the things that, you know, racism, white supremacy does, and then getting to a point of, I guess, what people will consider to be freedom. I think I could talk about what I know we have to do to get us started, right? Mm-hmm. Not, you know, one who's going to lay out a, a plan for everybody to follow because people aren't going to follow it, right? <laughs> so my thing is, look, if we all can commit to telling the truth and stop lying, mm. we lie to ourselves and to our children so regularly that we don't understand that we will never be free as long as we keep buying into the lies. I mean, we just came off of one big lie called Thanksgiving, right? And we still don't tell the truth about what we're celebrating when we celebrate Thanksgiving. So you can't celebrate, I don't care how you try to dress it up, 
unless you denounce it, <laughs> you are celebrating the genocide and extermination of a people, a people who were betrayed by the very people they helped. So if every year I, I celebrate that, this I believe in karma and you know I believe that reciprocity and all these things. That's that's an act of of, of non-integrity. Right. We we still do it with Columbus. We do it with all of these holidays. And I'm not I'm not coming against anybody's beliefs or whatever. But these are rituals where we're literally on a regular basis lying to ourselves in order to accept something that's heinous mm -hmm. I, I would i would be offended if people were celebrating my holocaust or my enslavement right mm. that, so, so why don't you think us doing that to other people creates a sense of disempathy on their behalf towards our suffering and our plight mm. so the and i've heard i've heard people say like just according to what you say i've heard people say like well that's not what it means now you know it's it's indigenous people's day you know it's 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 not it's not what you know what it was before we changed it like yeah and that that that's like spraying perfume on a pile of poop right mm. i mean it just because you haven't done any act of atonement so you can't just one day dress that up and, and and if people understand the symbology even of the turkey that you're still eating Right. You know, it would be like me going to, to India in a highly Hindu area and, and, and killing one of their cows and eating their cow in front of them because it's a sacred animal to them. Mm. So that would be an act of disrespect. The turkey was a sacred animal to the indigenous people here. I mean, when you see a, a, a headdress, often those are turkey feathers, right? They represent pageantry, pageantry. They represent bravery. They represent warriorhood. Right. So when I carve a turkey and I make it bare and I take those feathers off and I eat that turkey there, I'm making a mockery of the sacred animal of those people. Mm -hmm. That's just that's the purpose of it. That's why the Dallas Cowboys used to play the Washington Redskins every Thursday, right? I mean every mm. day. Because they understand what they're celebrating. They're celebrating a war of extermination that allowed them to stretch America from sea to shining sea. Mm. So when we sing those songs, from sea to shining sea, how did that happen? Because I exterminated the people from coast to coast who were living there so that we could have this thing we now call America. Man, powerful, powerful. That might be too much, man, for a lot of people because I feel like a lot of times we feel like we're we're forced, like, you know, I'm gonna be a social outcast if I'm saying oh, I'm not gonna celebrate yeah. this or you gotta you know, have the courage to tell that truth, man. And that's where we we so my thing is that we can draw these elaborate plans and and you should do this, and this is the, the ideology of black nationalism, or this is the road life of liberation, and all that's true. But if none of that matters, if we're not, if we can't deal with the truth of our everyday lies that we tell ourselves in order to be happy Americans, right? So, mm -hmm. like, people got it with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, essentially, like, yo, this is a this is a collusion of delusion that we're playing. But then I tell people that's one thing. But go back and actually read the full Star Spangled Banner. You know, read all of the verses and the stanzas to understand that the song itself is a racist song. 
and that America, almost 100 years after the song was written, it wasn't that long, it's about 70 years after the song was written, I mean, the poem, because it originally was a poem, was written, right. decided in about 1931 to adopt that racist song as its national anthem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't written as the national anthem. It was written as a song that was saying the British Empire and those who supported the British Empire, i.e. Africans, who sided with the British because the British said, if you if we win, you'll be free. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But in the War of 1812, it didn't go their way. The British were winning, but then in the Battle of Fort McHenry, the tides turned. And America wins the War of 1812. And then Francis Scott Key pins the song and he says in it, no refuge will save the hireling or slave from the gloom of the night. I mean, from something of the night and the gloom of the grave, right? Literally Mm -hmm. saying it in the song. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a song that really says, hey, for you all who fought against America, whether you did it as a British emissary or whether you did it for your own freedom, you're going to pay a price for that. Right. And this country, it, over 100 years later, this says, yeah, we like that song. We want that <laughs> one to be our national anthem. Like, so that's just a matter of, like, again, once I pull the, once Toto pulls the curtain back, you got to decide now what you do with that truth. Hmm. And we live in a country where we can try to delude ourselves and say, yeah, but yeah, they, it, yeah, maybe that was back then, but that's not really what it means now. And then we get surprised when they elect Donald Trump, right? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. You know, so you, you that, that's a lack of integrity right there because right. The, the, the cards have been around. The tea mm-hmm. leaves are there for you to read. You just got to stop lying to yourself. Then you won't be so surprised. Well said, well said. And and that truth thing, I think, is super important because when, when we get to the truth, a lot of people will be like, well, this is revolutionary type talk and this is like... Uh, Black nationalism, black yeah, radical. like that black, yeah, the radical black stuff, right? Yeah. And it's like, nah, it's just telling the truth about just, what happened. Exactly, <laughs> and that's what I tell people. Like, I, I'm not even going. Like, I could tell you what my personal politics are, but I'm, I'm not even going to tell you revolutionary. I'm just going to tell you the truth of it. I'm going to tell you, you know, why a product's marketed a certain way. Well, this is what marketers think, and that's why you have these particular tropes about Black life and Black people. And the same stuff looks very different when you go into suburban white areas. They don't market the same. There's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. We, we are so busy trying to belong that we don't want to accept the fact that what we're trying to belong to doesn't want us to belong to it. Right. And so you set your children up for failure when you don't teach them that lesson. That is facts, man. Facts. Um, so accepting the truth. And then I know the next thing you say is that, you know, it takes a village to raise our children. Right. So then how do we raise a village? I know that's a question that you ask. So let me ask you that, you know, if it takes a village to raise our children, how do we raise a village? Yeah. And, and, and that's the work, right? You know, the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, but how do you raise the village? That that was actually the question that led to the class that I started teaching at Penn, among other things, right? And I've been doing a lot of work. I call it village building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I go around and ask people like, yo, if we were a village and we had our own autonomy, all of those principles of Kwanzaa that we celebrate, what are the core functions that we would be doing in our own villages and we would be taking care of? And, you know, it whittled down to five core functions of village building. Um, mm-hmm. One is what we call eco-sovereignty, 
Right. Other people might call it economics, but economics, eco just literally means habitat. And sovereignty means authority. Mm -hmm. So you got to gain authority over your own habitat, your families, your 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 communities, your how your you know the housing, the food, the clothing, and shelter within the habitat or the surroundings. You have to have authority over those. So that becomes a mission. How do you do that? How do you make sure that the commerce in your community, the the politics in your community, the social relationships in your community or in your village are controlled by the people who live there? You know, that's not radical to demand that. That's called human. That's called humanity. Right. And if you're not doing that, you're living beneath your humanity. Like people got to understand that. That's not revolutionary. That's just humanity. Mm. You know, how do you control um, the the sense of governance and justice and the rules of order within your community? Let's make that happen. We got to have community covenants. We got to have codes of conduct that we're holding each other accountable to, expectations and roles that we're holding each other accountable to. Mm -hmm. So you begin to make those happen and you right. declare those because you can't see it if you won't say it, right? You can't define it if you won't declare it and things of that. So like, say who you are, say what you want. Because mm -hmm. what happens is in this is this acculturation of enslavement, slaves don't have a voice. They don't have a sense of autonomy. They don't have a sense of vision about the future because they don't control their futures, right? Mm -hmm. So if we are not slaves, let's begin to speak into that power. Um, mm -hmm. Let's create spaces where our children get to have recreation and entertainment and aspiration and leadership. We call it keeping it real. Because I got tired of asking young people, what's up? And they'll say, oh, nothing, just chilling, just grinding, just taking it day by day. I'm like, I can understand an old, tired, 50, 60, 70 year old person saying that. But that's mm -hmm. coming out the mouth of 10 and, and 15 year olds. That means their spirit has been defeated. So mm -hmm. we got to create spaces that feed the spirit. That's why I was so uplifting to see a young daughter, you know, you you have her asking these questions and I could see you grooming her for her legacy, right? Right. Like we got to be intentional about that at every level. That's a thing that it shouldn't be an exception. Every black child should have some kind of sense that they're being groomed for aspirational sense of excellence, right? Mm. Um, the needs of our community, I call it the three S's, social service system, systematization. The needs of our community have to be met by our community. We shouldn't have to rely on outside social workers and social service agencies and counselors to tell us how we meet the needs of our people. Our, our, the needs of our people have to be met by the village that houses and heals our people. Mm -hmm. So those are just kind of the core areas uh, that we f focus on. And then the last one is protection. Because the biggest problem we have as Black people right now, we can't protect ourselves. We can't protect ourselves from the police. We can't protect ourselves from any outside assaults, but most importantly, we can't protect ourselves from ourselves. Mm. We can't protect our community from the wayward ones in our community. And to me, that's really one of the first areas of village building that we have to really get back into our control or mm. else it's like uh, being a wildebeest or a gazelle in the midst of lions, right? You can't really ever be happy when you're always looking over your shoulder wondering when the lion is hungry. 
Mm. And so we got to remove that sense that our people have been designed to be the prey of other predators and figure out how we roam in our own majesty and our own authority. And so, you know, those are kind of the five core elements and just really sitting down with people in communities that you're a part of and trying to figure out how do you bring that into fruition? Well said, well said. Um, I think like uh, that makes a ton of sense, but you have like a lot of people in the community and um, black adults that they're worried about their family, individual family, their kid, you know, I'm raising my kid correctly. As long as they're good, I can't control what these other kids are doing on the outside. So they don't have that village mindset. So how could we kind of start infusing that into their heads and making it make sense? Because, you know, we can't do it without everybody, right? So how do how do they get to that point where we, they can see, you know, not just those kids, but our kids? Right. You can do it without everybody, but you, you got to have a critical back because we're never going to have everybody, unfortunately, right? And mm-hmm. I want to I wanna, uh, dispel or, or alleviate our need as organizers to have the burden of us thinking that we got to have everybody before we can move because that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So let's, but we do have to have a critical mass, right? And I'm, you know, I'm not, this is going to sound mean, but it's what I'm realizing to be true, at least in my neck of the woods. When you're, upstanding, A-plus, do everything right, family and child gets a bullet that wasn't intended for them, Mm. but they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Unfortunately, that motivates a lot of people to decide, hey, (laughs) we need to do something about where we live in this village we call home. Mm. Now, I would love for it not to take that for many people. Mm-hmm. But in the city of Philadelphia, a city that's just passed 506 murders, which is an all-time record for the city, mm-hmm. everybody's talking about collaboration and village building and working together now because they realize that the individual path has not worked. Mm-hmm. I wish they realized it 15 years ago when we wrote Why Our Children Hate Us, or I wish they realized it 150 years ago when every Black leader we know has said some version of this thing, right? Harriet mm-hmm. Tubman or Frederick Douglass or Marcus Garvey or, or, or Fannie Lou Hamer, like we've all said it, Elijah mm-hmm. Muhammad, right? right? But sometimes, unfortunately, as Marcus Garvey said, the black people, the black man and woman will not know themselves until their back is up against the cold of the brick and the wall. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it takes people to learn from their own individual suffering that we need to have a collective sacrifice. Right. And I think that Black collective suffering is pushing us towards Black collective sacrifice. And however it comes, it needs to come because it's the only solution that we have. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, you know, unfortunately, I'm saying circumstances sometimes create the revolutionaries, it creates the radicals, it creates the organizers and the way makers. And right now, the circumstances for us as Black people, locally, nationally, and internationally, are so dire that people can't help but talk about unification and unity and collective work and responsibility now. Mm. Well said, well said. And um, I just want to break things down, like, from take that village and just break it apart um while you have that village if you break it down you have the family right um the family structure you know 
parents and children. So if we take that and we break it apart, we got um, raising boys and then raising girls. And I kind of want to identify, you know, what the reality is for black boys and what the reality is for black girls. Because I think a lot of times, like, you know, like you mentioned, like in your book a lot too, like we don't see our children, we don't see their pain, their experiences, what they're going through. And, um, you know, we look at things from an adult lens. I, I was guilty of this myself. Um, so um, can you break down, like for those of us that just don't really get the reality for black boys um, in this country and then the reality for black girls and then what you think could be done to kind of um, assist them in developing them into, you know, the type of adults that, you know, are going to be fighting for their children, like those mm -hmm. type of adults, you know? There's two vignettes we have in the book too. Um, and I think the sunrise and the sunsets. Mm -hmm. It'll be two pieces out if every, anybody has the book, because I think they do a good job of painting the picture from the lens of, um, you know, particularly uh, in those two vignettes uh, from Black girls. And then right. we have a, one, a, a brief uh, piece called About Black Boys mm -hmm. in there as mm -hmm. well. Um, a lot of the center of the book focuses on Black boys, mainly because the areas we worked in, issues of incarceration, juvenile justice, they impacted Black boys disproportionately, right? Mm -hmm. But we also see the pain of, of, of what happens to Black black young ladies as well. Um, yeah, it's funny because I was I was talking with a group of organizers yesterday, and one of the things I was saying is one of the one of the things we make a mistake of doing is talk about you know this is a black male issue or a black female issue. I I, I start my show every week with a quote um, by that uh, was found in a book called African Power by Dr. Asa Hillier, but it's a quote by John Henry Clark that says slavery was, and I say is a war a war against African culture, but most importantly, a war against the structure of the African family. Mm. And so that's important because the cornerstone of our work is always village building, right? It takes a village to raise a child, so we must raise the village. Mm -hmm. But the cornerstone backbone of the village is the family. right? And then within the family expectation, um, which is the vibranium of the village right that the mm -hmm. family is then we all have our roles as pillars uh, or, or legs on a stool that uphold the family mm -hmm. and that is the baba the mama the watoto or the child the youth whatever you want to call it and then the elder right, right. and so it's really about looking at the way that this society then structures its attack on the collective unit called the family through individual destabilization of those four, four roles in the family, eldership, mama, baba, and child, Watoto. Mm -hmm. And I think you, I think if you look at COVID, it's a, it's a perfect case study because COVID by design in this early wave was designed to eviscerate eldership. Mm. Right. And so, you know, you have incarceration, um, um, homicide, um, police brutality that have a very pernicious impact on fatherhood, malehood, manhood. Mm -hmm. There are other things that impact manhood, but you have particular things in this culture that are designed to break the will and spirit of manhood. Then you have 
issues around foster care, right. uh, welfare, mandatory separation of the mother from the child and having children have to go to daycare as early sometimes as six months or six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So structure systems and policy structures that are designed to eviscerate the power and the purpose of the vill- the cornerstone of the village, which is the family. Because if the family is in disarray, the village is going to be in disarray. Right. But if the village is able to sustain the family, then the family sustains the child and all the, all the pillars there. So we can look at the very different policies. They all overlap. But you can, if you wanted to map it, oh, this policy by design is going to impact elders. Everything from, from the fact that many Black people, right, don't live long enough to collect full benefits from the Social Security payments that they've paid into all their lives from working, right? Mm-hmm. So we're literally working, and then someone else gets to reap the benefits of the Social Security because we're dying at 66, 67 years old, right? right. Many Black people are dying unmarried. So all of their benefits don't get to like if I if you die as a married uh, married man or woman, then your spouse gets spousal benefits. Right. But mm-hmm. if black families aren't married and they aren't together, when a, the breadwinner dies, they can't transfer their benefits to anybody. So you're, again, cycling, cycling poverty generation to generation because we're not even doing the basic family functioning that allows us to sustain the legacy across generations, right? Right. We're, you know, we, we, we're not passing down the houses. We're not transferring benefits because of family just basic dysfunction. So there's a very strategic way and some very strategic, simple decisions we can begin to make. Like I tell people all the time, there's no black people past the age of 50 or 60 who shouldn't be married. You ain't even got to like the person you marry. <laughs> Just make a business arrangement. Mm, mm. This is how they're taking trillions of dollars from us across generations. Mm. Let's plug that hole. Like I tell you, like if there's, a, if there's a, a single black woman who has a great job and benefits and she's single and she's 50 and 60 and she's about to retire, why don't you go find a, a young dude out here? Well, he ain't even got to be that young, but find a dude out here who you know is organizing for the community, doing great things and struggling and literally marry him so that he has access to whatever benefits you think of benefit, medical care, whatever the case. Like, make strategic, y'all ain't got to live in the same house. Y'all ain't got to like each other. Y'all ain't got to have sex. That's just business decisions right now that mm. the people who were serious about themselves would be making. Right. So, you know, that's just one example, man, of the different ways that I think we got to become more intentional about village building that don't require us to pick up an AK-47 and a red, black and green flag and talk about revolution, revolution. Right. That's a separate conversation. But what are the strategic decisions right now? That just makes sense for black people so that we can begin to protect the, the, the eldership, the mamahood, the fatherhood and the childhood of our family units. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think a lot of times we don't look at marriage anymore as a business type of, you know, situation. It's got to be in love and which is, you know, doesn't last. <laughs> you know, people might argue that, but <laughs> let, let me say that real quick, because what they've done in this culture, man, is they reduced us to just a feeling 
beings. Exactly. Yep, and so yep. we are making these long-term legacy decisions based on feelings and impulses. Mm-hmm. And you can't sustain feelings and impulses over time. They're, they're, they, by definition, are going to wane and waver. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to decide about marriage, if I'm going to decide about legacy, if I'm going to decide about how to pass assets across generations, mm-hmm. I can't make those decisions based on whether I like you. Right. You know, I can't make it on impulses like, are you cute or not? Those are strategic business sovereignty decisions that we're not making as a people because we're like, well, I don't like that. That don't sound right. I don't <laughs> like him. Like, no, that's 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 immature. Right. Right. And, um, you know, just to bring it back into like the black boy and black girl. Right. So if we look at the black boy, um, you know, and I, I know you've mentioned this stuff before, like you ask black boys, like, what do you want to do? You know, they, they want to be in the NBA. They want to be in the NFL. They want to be a rapper, whatever it is. Um, and past that, there's no thought process. You know, there's no. And then, the you know, the the lack of emotional response and the not the the, the low self-esteem, stuff like that, you know, like how do we. Um, take that and um, transition it to them becoming men and raise them to be men in their communities, in their villages? Well, again, it, it starts with setting the expectation. So like it, it just hit me when you asked the question, something I've been working on and I'm, I'm not perfect. So I'm striving for a lot of what I'm saying out loud. But right. in my mind, it's like, you know, you know, when we'll know we turn the corner when you ask a little black child, it's two things. I asked my son when he was younger. He's about the age of your daughter, maybe even younger than her, man. I think he's about five or six. And I said, okay. Yo, what, do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, everything. Ooh. And I like it. Yeah, that's the answer right there. <laughs> like that. Because that means that means nobody has dampened your spirit yet. Mm. But how do we sustain that answer even when he's 15 and 16 and 20? Right. Like, if we could just, like, if I say, get everybody in the room and answer that question, right? Because we ain't got to make this, because that to me is the revolution. If, mm-hmm. if a Black child can say, I want to be whatever I want to be, I want to be everything. And then the Black village says, okay, that's our mission right there. Let's make that come true. Right. And we're doing our work. The other thing is, like, what if you ask a Black, when have you ever heard a Black child, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. What's the answers you normally get in the work that you do? Like I just mentioned, man, um, you know, and I, I really hate to say this, but it, it, for, it's, it's a reality because um, kids are generally honest with me. Um, so I've asked this from um, girls as well. And I've, I'm hearing a lot more girls, I guess, because of the structure of the way girls are being um, you know, socialized right now in the media. But a lot of girls are now saying strippers, which is like, mm. I've never heard it before. Right. But recently, past few years, this is like, and I, I say like, that's not, you're not, you're not serious about, it. no, this is. Oh, you know why they're serious though? Because <laughs> most, most of the black women that we idolize now in, in, in hip hop and entertainment, they started out in the strip game. Exactly, exactly. And that's part of the narrative that's being promoted, right? It's, it's not it's not accidental, right? But my mm-hmm. thing is, what if Black child and Black... Because I've, I've never heard a Black boy or a woman, girl, say... I think about a Black boy says, you know what? I'm going to be the best Black man, and more importantly, I'm going to be a great Black father mm. when I grow up. Mm. So what if we develop a campaign around that? Like, what? what okay, now, Village, they've said that. What does that because that if you decide as a boy that that's who you're going to be, whether you biological father or social father, mm-hmm. 
then that means there's a lot you have to learn. There's a lot you have to become. There's a lot that we have to teach you and offer you and support you with. And then again, that gives it energy. So what does it say that when we ask our children that nobody ever thinks about those roles, the essential roles of the village, right? We just talked about that. So I said, what do you want to be when you get older? Nobody says, I'm going to be the best black mother or the best Mm. black father or the best best black woman or the best black man. You know what? I want to grow so powerful that I am an esteemed elder in the village. Mm. And then our job now becomes to make that aspiration come true. Mm-hmm. So what my, my desire is to see us get to that level where instead of saying grinding or NBA player or rapper, well, I just want to be alive, right? I've heard people just say that. I just I've heard that too. Yep. They literally can say, I want to become my, what do you want to be when you get older? I want to be the best damn elder I could be. And I want to be the greatest parent, mother, father, whatever, whatever, whatever. What if that becomes a collective aspiration mm-hmm. of our children and we begin yeah. to be the village that can bring that to, to fruition? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but those things can be done. It's not like a career goal where it's like there's right. a lot of factors. This stuff, like what you just mentioned, is capable of being done, right? It's not like in the hands of anybody else. It's not, there's no other factors to it, but you actually doing it, so. And it incorporates uh, the career goals or the- Absolutely. Because part of of those roles require that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Like the big aspirational ideal will then give you a path forward that will include your career goals. It would include you understanding parenting skills. It would include you understanding your role in the village and the family and preparing for that. It would Mm -hmm. include the rites of passage processes that you have to go through, the Mm -hmm. gems that we have to put you in contact contact with uh, your whole human development plan gets shaped by your aspiration to become the best black elder mm-hmm. that you could be you know right. elders by definition are esteemed in the community because of their contribution so it's not that you just become old you are known as an elder because you contribute in a particular way and that declaration now that vision now purposes your life absolutely absolutely and I think, too, like, um, you know, when we look at children, it's not really what I say, but it's what I do. So I think that question needs to be asked of um, the adults as well and, um, you know, Im- implemented by the adults as well so that the kids can see that and then, you know, embody that. So I think um, that's that should be part of the parenting process where yeah. you're asking yourself, how do I get better? How do I be a better father? How do I be a better um, wife? And how do I be a better son, a, a, a better parent to my kids and this and that and the third, like those are the questions we should be asking as well as adults. Um, so we can provide our children with those examples and, yeah. you know, it goes from there. Yeah. So if I'm how, how am I the bridge that they walk on mm-hmm. to become what they just declare they want to be? There it is right there. There it is right there. So if I'm listening in as a parent, I kind of starting to understand the parental component of this, but as far as the village component, like, you know, I'm not Brother Shamari. I'm not out here doing all these community um, planning events and organization type of things and building like that. Like, I don't even know where to begin in my community. With Sometimes I'm afraid to talk to these kids. You know what I mean? Like, they're rude. They're, you know, I'm a, I'm a little scared to talk to them. Like, how do I even begin to build my village and my community? And like, what what is like some of the initial steps that I could take? You know, a, a, a friend of mine that I teach my class with, Dr. Howard Stevenson, has a model um, that I that I I just think is sums it up 
Um, you know, I talked about the areas, the five areas of village building, and I think activity and action and contribution in each of those areas, however you define it, is a start. You know, so we're talking about neighborhood protection, um, we talk about governance and, and, and justice, we talk about eco-sovereignty, we talk about aspirational leadership for our young people, and we talk about part of uh, providing the supports and services that our village needs, right? That's the work of it. But then the heart of it, um, you know, because oftentimes in the situation you're talking about, we start with a, a we start with correction. Mm. What you find is that you can't correct somebody that you haven't invested in and that you don't have a relationship. So he has a, 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 a framework that talks about affection, protection before correction. Mm. So it, you know, I, and I have I have this 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 line of T-shirts and designs that I'm gonna come out with soon. This is the three L's: Black love, Black loyalty, Black life. Mm. Right? You know, how how are you bringing Black love? How are you exhibiting Black loyalty such that it brings Black life? And life for me is liberation, independence, freedom, and empowerment. But Dr. Stevenson's piece is affection, protection before correction, and then you know some other people have added to it. So it's five five core uh, spokes on, on that wheel, affection, right. protection, connection, direction, correction. Mm -hmm. And so if you are on point as delivering, like, like ask yourself, how, how am I a source of affection in my family? How am I a source of affection on my block with my neighbors, right? What is it that I do that I'm bringing? Do I do I do I water my flowers and keep my garden nice? Do I do I say hi to everybody who walks down the street, whether they speak back to me or not? Like, because I don't know anybody. Now, I'm not saying this never happened, but I don't really know anybody that's ever got shot because they said hello. Mm. What happens is people get offended that other people don't respond when you say hello. Well, you don't have no control over the response. But what if you say every day, I want to bring a sense of, 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 of happiness. So I'm going to do, what if you decide that on my block, the type of music that's blasting will be uplifting and joyful instead of nigga, ho, you know, whatever, 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 right? So they're, mm -hmm. they're like, you should have a checklist on within your own scope of the world, how you bring affection. Yeah. How do I bring protection? Am I present? Or do I leave the children out on the street playing by themselves unattended with no adult supervision? I might not even have to say anything, but somehow the presence of adults on the block symbolizes a sense of protection for children. Mm. How am I assuring protection and, 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 and healthy uh, stasis and, and, and homeostasis in my home, right? How am I greeting or inter interacting with the children such that they don't feel frazzled or anxious, right? There are these very basic things, this return to humanity again, man, affection, protection, connection. You know, how am I using my social capital to help other people advance, right? Or am mm -hmm. I hogging everything I know and everything I can do to myself? Mm -hmm. What is the sense of the direction that my family says we have to live into, that this block says we have to live into? Just like you ask a child what they want to be when they get older. You might ask people, let's say I grew up on Robinson Street. And what's the Robinson Street code says that when people think of our block, what do we want them to think of? And then how do we make a covenant such that everybody on the block 
is chipping into that vision of our block. Mm. So I say to people, stop right there. You're not obligated after that to become a revolutionary on the front lines of every, every struggle. If everybody just said, you know what? Yes, that right there. We're going to do that. Mm-hmm. We begin to transform ourselves overnight. Absolutely. And um, just into what you said, transforming ourselves too. I think it is, you know, part of that community is the community of self, right? So um, as far as the self goes, I know in your book, you mentioned something called PTSDS and um, something that we suffer from and that we need to heal from. And I think that's part of the process too, in regards to building that village is healing ourselves and from our past and childhood trauma. So how do you suggest that we, we get into that as well to kind of complete that whole cycle there? Yeah, I believe actually what we're saying is that, right? So the PTSTDs was a playoff of two things, you know, the spread of STDs and the spread of uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Everybody's talking about we traumatized, we traumatized, we traumatized. And I tell people how to be careful because that narrative is going to define things. You got to have a different language. Mm. So I said we're so busy spreading PTSD, right? Pain, trauma, suffering, um, trouble, and disorders, or whatever the case may be. And I said, but really, we got to return to our ABCs. And ABCs is really very simple um, attachment, belonging, connection. And then a third, if we want to add a D, direction, attachment, belonging, connection, direction. Mm. So instead of spreading PTSDs, let's spread and learn our ABCs. I just really think it's that simple, man. You got to have a little mantra, right? So right now, even when you look at mental health, everybody's talking about trauma, ACEs and trauma. Mm -hmm. Every time you look up, we're telling these trauma narratives. I'm looking on Netflix now. Everything is trauma narrative, right? Even Philly's own Kevin Hart has a show out now called True Story. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen like, it. It's little Kevin Hart, man. How are you going to have a story with Kevin Hart within the first episode that killed two people? Mm. The lady <laughs> next to him ODs uh, or some Oxycontin. Mm. And then he has a dude. Well, I wanted to tell the story away because some people <laughs> might be going to watch it. But it's like, it's like he's going out of his way to act like he's hard and a gangster. Mm. And I'm like, that ain't you. So, right. you know, why, what, what is it about now, everywhere you look, Black people have to be gangsters. We got to be hard. We got to tell these hard trauma stories, right? And that's what happened. I used to tell people all the time, you know, we're going to die in the name of keeping it real. Mm. And that reality ain't really ours. Like, if you were telling the truth, most of us, as, as, as bad as these narratives are, they're very particular incidents that don't define the totality of our Blackness except in the stories that we tell. Right. So we're telling trauma tales because somebody has told us that in order to be black, it means you have to suffer. It means you have to die. It means you have to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about the class I teach at Penn, man. Our first exercise that we do every semester, we call Story in a Round. And I have a good brother storyteller uh, that also teaches with us. His name is Brother Rob. And he starts, this, he starts the story the same way for the last 15 years. We've been doing this since 2007. Mm-hmm. And drum, we sit in a circle and we had the students in the class. And, you know, they come in a college graduate class in a circle with drums. So they're already a little off their comfort zone, right? They don't know what's about to happen. It's not very traditional. Mm-hmm. And so he just hits the rhythm, bop a dot, bop a doom, bop, bop. And he just, and then, you know, I, sometimes I'll carry the drum with them just as often. 
And he'll just start to tell a story. Yeah, Ra- Rashid woke up this morning feeling fine. He went into the bathroom. He took a shower. He brushed his teeth. It was the first day of school. Rashid heard his mom say, come on, she come get your breakfast because it's time to go. Rashid walks down the steps. He grabs his his lunch bag from his mother's arm. She kisses him. He walks out the door on his way to school. And then you hear the drum break. And you pass the story along until it goes around to everybody in the circle contributing to the story. Not once in our 15 years of doing this in the class. We also do it in, 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 in group homes. We've done it in recreation centers. Not once. Actually, let me tell the truth. Only once. Only once and probably doing this close to 50 times has Rashid not died wow. or gone to jail or gotten stabbed or some kind of trauma that the storytellers. And now all of these are people who work with black boys. They sign up for our class. They want to learn. Right. They, mm-hmm. they, they're going to be uh case managers or counselors or probation officers or, or or social workers only one time has rashid not gone through hell and even yeah. when rashid didn't die they still took they still rough rashid up in the story it's just that they didn't kill him mm. now so then we get in the room where we had uh, uh, the recreation center in Philly called King Sesson and all the people in this situation, they work in, the, in either as volunteer or staff in the center and they're all black. And so at the end of the story, we, we debrief a process and like, why, why did you all work with black boys and black youth for a living? Why did y'all kill Rashid? Hmm. And a mother, black mother, probably about in her 50s, literally says, Y'all named him Rashid. Hmm. What did you think was going to happen? Hmm. That's the state that we're in as a people where we've been convinced that just our name, our blackness, our existence, by definition, means we have to suffer. Hmm. That's what we're trying to undo when we talk about why our children hate us, how black adults betray black children or the new volume coming out for the love and life of Black children. These trauma narratives are killing us. Hmm. Man, that, well said, man, well said. And um, I think part of it, you know, part of the solution to that is like thinking positively about the future and trying to, you know, have a positive impact on some of the stuff that's happening right now. And um, I know some of that stuff is what you talk about as well. So let's imagine that, you know, that, Black folks, Black adults respond to this village concept and we start building and we start growing and the, the whole idea of the Black child changes and it's, you know, Black children are constructive and we're doing wonderful things. Um, what do you think freedom, that word, looks like for us, like as a as a people? Like, what, what does that look like if we're like 50, 100 years from now and we, we can control our destiny? What does that look like? I mean, I think it looks like a lot of different things for a lot of different people and I I'm open to that now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we're going to have everybody agreeing to what their version of freedom is, but the idea that everybody can have their version of freedom is freedom for me. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I know what it feels like and looks like is that I'm 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 a citizen or denizen of a Pan African 
collective uh, diaspora. And I get to be a citizen, an African citizen across the globe, wherever I decide to be, that all of the African continent is liberated fully of all forms of domination, particularly the European colonization that still grips the continent today. Mm. And that that same reality is the definition of what people, you know, the places that people now call the Caribbean. It feels and looks like for me best articulated uh, in the vision of the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey and his declaration of the rights of, 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 of the Negro people across the world. Mm-hmm. And most importantly and most vividly for me, and I'm not saying this because you're Haitian, <laughs> but in, in, in the prayer and the work of Bukman, where people like I, I contend that one of the biggest mistakes we made. Um, particularly across uh, the diaspora, but particularly in Haiti, was looking at Haiti as a nation state. It was never its purpose. Like Bukman and then all the way through up to Dessalines and the writing of the Constitution, Haiti was always seen as the Pan-African headquarters, the Pan-African citadel. It was Mm -hmm. a place where all free Africans could call home regardless mm-hmm. of where they were in the world. It was the model of African freedom. Mm-hmm. It was, it's almost like the UN, the United Nations is for the Europeans, right? Or Switzerland, right? That was supposed to be what Haiti and IET represented, right? That's freedom to me. When we return to those, not only return to the vision, but we actualize that vision that's already been articulated for us by our great leaders, all, all that participated in the, in the decade-long struggle that lays up to the Haitian Revolution that then gets re-articulated in the vision of Mar- Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey that then uh, uh, tried to be forwarded in the vision of, of Malcolm X and his development of the Organization of African and African-American Unity is there. And just being able to create that vision in places across the African diaspora, that's what freedom looks like for me. Mm. That's my, my, my dream of what I live for. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, I hope that that can be a reality someday, man. Um, and we got to envision that, man. I'm glad you, you kind of painted that picture for us. Cause I think that's important part of the process that we, we exit out of the trauma that you mentioned and we enter into a more positive reality of what could be, you know? Um, mm. so I think that's super important. Um, and I kind of want to leave off to on some positive things that you do. I don't want people to think that you just uh, are going around and <laughs> you know, listening to trauma and all the stuff. But one of the things that you do in the community, too, is um, uh, this uh, activity that you call Spirit of the Drums. Um, so can you talk about kind of that and how that kind of came about and your ex- the experience that it's, it's been for like the community and everybody involved? Man, you scared me, man. It's like you've been doing some homework on the budget. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, you know, like you said earlier, I do a, a radio show um, every week um, called Groundings. Um, yeah. And so in that work, you have a chance to you know, come across a lot of great people that you either do on community work with or that call a regular station, call a radio station on a regular basis and contribute to your show. Mm-hmm. One of those people in that journey is a brother named Wasset. Um, and we used to have something in Philly, you know, I think if you're outside of Philly, you might know a doom day. One of the largest African street festivals. Um, and then we also used to have a, a something called 
the Ingoma spirit of the drum. I mean, Ingoma drum tribute. That was convened for several years, probably about 16 years or so by Mama Maisha. Mm -hmm. And then around COVID time, we stopped, you know, both of those events kind of stopped happening in Philly in 2020. And Brother Wasset had an idea to keep the energy of the idea of the Ngoma drum tribute alive through the spirit of the drum, where we would just go to different kind of local public areas around Philly, mostly parks during the summer and drum and dance and kind of almost bring like a family reunion kind of vibe, you know, using the drum and be amongst the people in the park and, you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, we, we, our job was to bring the spirit of the drum mm -hmm. to these locations that where people were and with the belief and understanding that the spirit of the drum will transcend the negativity that, that's going on in that space and begin to create a different vibration in the spaces. And so every week, Sunday, one o'clock to four o'clock, we go out, the drummers, uh, people in our community hitting the middle of the circle and start dancing. We have a queen elder, a queen mother in our village, uh, actually two queen mothers in our village, Mama Kay and Mama Atia Ola, who are, are elder, elder sisters that specialize in vegan and healthy food whole food kind of stuff so they would come free of charge they would set up their tables and 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 feeding the village while we're drumming while we're dancing some sisters would play jump rope children on the recreation you know having fun and it's just bringing a festive spirit filled teaching about african culture and teaching particularly about the role of the drum in the healing and the unifying of African culture. The drum is such a multifaceted tool and weapon in our liberation struggle, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about why the drum, why the drum was banned. I'm sorry, why the drum was banned, why the drum, why we've been forbidden to use the drum, the way the drum could be used to send healing vibrations, also war messages. So mm -hmm. it's really teaching about how we need to understand the technology. Mm -hmm. The spiritual technology of the drum from an African centered perspective while we're dancing and celebrating with the drum. And what we begin to find, man, once we start playing the drums, is it might be a drunk brother, a drunk, drunk sister in the park, right? That'll come up and get up and start dancing in the middle of the circle. And we'll start to remember, yeah, I remember when I used to take these lessons when I was a young person, right? And I said, yeah, we used to do this dance called whatever, whatever, whatever. And so it begins to break down what we would normally see as, as boundaries of one another because sometimes you know you get the people who are into the culture who consider themselves woke or conscious sometimes they feel like they're too good to be with our brothers and sisters who still might be stumbling and trying to find their way mm. and we found that this spirit of the drum was a way of bringing community to the community as an element of our village building campaign man that that is just such a beautiful thing uh, to think about man um i would like to see it for myself at some point man Especially have you seen our facebook page cuz we got some video footage and some different things you know it's it's, it's on a, if you go to facebook and go to spirit of the drum mm -hmm. um you got some pictures and some uh some some facebook page stuff and if you want to come out man you know when the oh, yeah. comes back again you know, every That's Sunday, a, one to four. We're two years in on this, so it's become like a ritualized thing we do with Philly. It's, 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 it's an institution now. So Yes, sir. This summer, I'm definitely going to make a trip and uh, check out Spirit of the Drums for myself, man, because yeah. um, I got I to see it, man. I got to see it. So I'm excited about that. 
There you um, go. Yes, sir. Um, all right, I wanted to get into a quick activity before we close out called um, What's Your Favorite? Identifying a few of your favorite things. Um, I know you mentioned um, the show that you do, um, Groundings, and you start off with uh, an African story um, by your, um, uh, one of your Jenga's, um, uh, Papa. Pop, pop, grow pop, something. Yes, sir. Pop, pop, grow something. So he he does a, a masterful job. Matter of fact, we might bring him in at some point on the program, um, but he does a masterful job storytelling. Um, so I wanted to ask kind of like what your favorite um, African story was. <laughs> Um, yeah, man, one that the one I can't run from my hand tonight is uh, the version I'm most familiar with. It was done by a barber here named Ed Robinson. And to be honest with you, man, I don't even know if it's an African story, he just Africanized the story. But it's the chicken <laughs> and the eagle, it's the chicken and the eagle story. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard it, I've heard different versions of it, man. But it's about it's about you know, uh, uh eagle that was raised thinking he was a chicken. Mm. Um, and and so it's not until this older eagle comes down and says, I know who you are. I knew your father. I knew your mother. Because, again, the father and the mother were killed in order for the eagle to be raised as a chicken. And the farmer was trying to make money off it. So the, 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 the big eagle reminds the little eagle of who he is and what his destiny is and his power and his dignity. He wasn't meant to be down there with the chickens. He was meant to fly, you know, higher than any bird could fly. And so just the story of this Baba Eagle educating this wayward eagle about his real self and his potential. And then that young eagle realizing, hey, because chickens can't fly, right? They got wings, but they can't fly. And this right. eagle is never flying because in his mind, he's a chicken. Hmm. And it's not until he's taught better that he knows better and then he becomes better. And so that's that's my favorite story, chicken and the eagle story. Powerful, man. Powerful. All right. Um, what's favorite lesson that you learned from a child? Oh man. Um, it's, it has so many lessons. I, I, you know, there's a poem called "I Am a Village Raised Child," and I, I, you know, for as bad or bad as some of my stories are or may be for people, man, I, I could never profess that I, I, I was alone, man. I feel like I was always looked out for, and even to this day, as a grown man, am looked out for by my village. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the story for me, man. That whenever things get tough, like I've never felt like I was abandoned per se. Um, mm. I feel like I could have been supported better, but I never felt like I was abandoned. And so I think for me, that's my my biggest kind of thing that I learned as a child and that has sustained me throughout my, my life now. Right. And has a kid or a child ever taught you a lesson that, you know, that you look back on? Oh, man, you know, I, I got an old, my sons, man, I got a, two sons. One is uh, now 12 and the oldest one is now 28. Mm. And the good, the bad, and ugly of being a father, <laughs> man. And and you know, I you know, I will admit that with my first son particularly, is is probably more ugly. And so looking back and reflecting on some of the, you know, the ugly. And when I say ugly, I mean the the, the disconnect between wanting to do the right thing, but not being equipped to do the right thing. So you let your anger or resentment or your words or you know. I think that some that's where the PTSD thing comes from. Mm -hmm. Like I think that sometimes we parent from a place of pain and trauma and suffering, and if we're not careful, we could pass that down to our children. 
That's why I really, you know, was enjoying seeing your young daughter in her full confidence, you know, do what she did because we got to be intentional about building that up because if we're not intentional, the de facto position is that we're passed down fear, we're passed down shame, or we're passed down suffering, you know, because we went through hell, you go through hell too. And so mm. learning that lesson and trying to engage in the corrections and, 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 and write, you know, trying to write that now, that's something that I've learned. And, and you know, watching the power that we as parents and adults have over who our children believe they can become I'm, I'm learning that, man. And so that as I try to relate with young people now, I try to do it a lot differently because they're carrying a lot of pain that we can't just make them want to jump in and do the right thing. We actually got to reprove ourselves to them as their village and as their mamas and babas. So I know that was a long answer, but that's that's what I'm learning. Makes sense. It makes sense. Um, what's favorite lesson that you've learned from another parent? Uh, nurturing, um, you know, a lot of what we were talking about today is stuff I've learned from watching people, um, you know, like, again, man, that when I say my youngest son at one point said he wanted to be everything. And, you know, I, you know, I grew up where, you know, I, I wanted to be an artist when I was younger, right. Of, of mm-hmm. all things. Right. And I was told you can't do that. You know, you're not good enough or you ain't gonna make no money or artists don't make money. You need to go do this. You know, and so, you know, watching other parents um, who can say, no, you know, watching how they nurture their children such that they sustain their belief in themselves. And how do you do that, but not like spoil or how do you do that, but not. So such that it's not a delusion, right? How do you nurture, but you also want to prepare and equip the children to deal with the real world that they have to deal with? You know, when I watch parents who do that well, those are the lessons I learned. Gotcha. Um, what's been your favorite radio program that you've done? Groundings, I believe. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, I, is this considered a radio program? Man, I, I'll give you some shout out for, for the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if this is one that I've done. I, I tell you one that inspired me the most. Well, what, what are, in, in Groundings, like, do you have like a favorite? episode you've done that you're like you go back on like yo that like we really hit the nail on the head on that episode or that you were inspired by or whatever yeah the one that sticks with me the most uh and again it's a good bad and ugly i had a chance to interview um the mothers of sandra bland oh wow uh sean bell eric gardner and Tamir Rice, hmm. all at the same time, because they were in Philly for uh, something that they were a part of. And I had the chance to interview them in studio. Hmm. Like, this is pre-COVID, like in the room with them. And the gamut of emotions that it took, the dignity that those sisters, those mothers displayed, um, the power it was just, man, that that to me is is still, you know, I don't even know whether to call it a highlight because the, the context was traumatic. Right. And it was all of them at the same time. So can you imagine, like, it's a, just a lot. But the, they, they, they were so strong in their fortitude, man, that I just walked out of there, like, inspired and, and ready to go. Mm. 
And yeah, I'm 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 inspired listening to that man. The fact that and the funnest one I ever did, I will I'll say is is something mm-hmm. I, I did. I'm gonna do a game called God Search. And you know, I don't know if you ever uh, ever saw the uh, show Star Search coming up, but the premise of it was that you know, for black people, whatever gods we worship, it ain't working. So we need to have auditions for new gods. <laughs> so I did a whole kind of audition series of, you know, we trained in these gods for new gods. And so it was just kind of a, a it was kind of like a, a what's, it, what's it called? A satire on star search. So we would have gods come out and perform and we would determine whether or not that could be our new god as black people. Mm. I'm going to go back to the archives and check those out, man. Yeah, that's going to be hard to find, man. <laughs> I, I, don't, I think I was the only one who enjoyed that. So I was trying to do it like a round-robin tournament where we would just go through the uh, history of the different gods and we would pick, you know, we would pit like uh, uh, Dumare against uh, Jesus Christ, right? Mm. And so people would have to argue about what made Jesus Christ so great or what makes Ono Dumari so great? Did we have to pick which God advances to the next round because of what <laughs> historically done for black people? Like it just it was a way of teaching some stuff, but I, I found that, that was kind of that was kind of one of my favorite episodes too. Yeah, I gotta go back to that, man. Um all right, what's um been I know you play some music on the program too. What's your favorite black song? My favorite black song um ever. I think I'm a fan of Redemption Song by Bob Marley. Classic. Um, he also has another one of my favorite songs, though, and I'm not sure. It's oh, uh, Time Will Tell. Mm-hmm. Oh, Time Will Tell. Think you're in heaven, but you're living in hell. Um, yeah. I love his version of it, but I even like more Ziggy Marley. His son did a version of Time Will Tell. Mm-hmm. I, I can't get through that song without crying, man. So that's kind of kind of one of my favorite joints. That and Redemption Song. Got you and Bob Marley, definitely a revolutionary man. So what what are some of your favorite black revolutionaries or activists? Oh man, that's a, <laughs> that's an all-night thing. I, I you know, I, I, I keep it to the ones I've had a chance to be around. Okay. That has the most influence on me. Um yeah, so my 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 direct Baba Jegna's in Philly, who I'm you know, I'm if it wasn't for them, I probably would, you know, wouldn't be on the path that I'm on. It's definitely the two brothers, uh, Deacon Dell Jones, uh, who 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 were, you know, ran something called Know Thyself Bookstore. Bob Adele is an ancestor now, Brother Deacon is still with us. Um ideologically, man, as well as almost had a chance to work with him, but he passed away suddenly, was uh Baba Dr. Amos Wilson. Wow. Yeah, he was also a Morehouse man and went to the new school, which I didn't know at the, you know, I didn't know, but um, he came to Philly for a lecture and I mentioned to him that I was at the new school and I went to Morehouse and he had opened up the doors for me and and my 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 fellow uh, students at the new school. Cause at that time that was when he was, he was still working on blueprint for black power and starting to talk about opening, uh, starting a susu and a credit union. And he was like, you know, I would love for for you all to come help me think through that and, and work on that. And man, I procrastinated and procrastinated. And then I looked up and he was no longer with us. And I was like, Dad, boy, and I hate, I hate missing those opportunities. So him, uh person I've never met, but works that I just greatly appreciated. I hope I get a chance to meet her is uh Mama Marimba Ani. Mm. She wrote a book called Your Ruby. Ruby I just yeah. like I like what she does overall, period. 
Um, I got a chance to meet one of your uh, elder from, from Haiti, whose work I just love immensely. Would love to do some more building with her. And I'll stop with this, uh, Mama Baina Bella. Oh, man, you, you, we're gonna, she's going to be on soon. She's oh, yeah, great, soon. man. Let me know that because I would love this. I, I just love, I love her essence. Man, I get motivated by queen mothers who still have their warrior spirit, man. And yes. They, I walk through, I would walk through a wall for a queen mother who still has a warrior spirit. So both her and Mama Marimba Ani, I, I would love to have a chance to build with them in, in very intentional ways. Um, that, that, that would be something that motivates me immensely. Mm, yeah yeah those are some powerful powerful black folks right there man and um you know i would i would urge listeners to definitely find out who those people are if you don't know they have a lot of information uh youtube videos books everything so you should definitely know who those people are um are you know i gotta ask you what your favorite thing about black children are favorite things oh man um <laughs> when um you know what man it good seeing your daughter and again when my little son said they could be everything and the thing about it is black children are uniquely gifted that when their souls are not taken when their spirits are allowed to shine bright and black they are the most powerful potentials in the world Right. There's no greater potentiality than an inspired and aspiring black child. Mm. Um, and that I think that everybody knows that, which is why the world conspires against us and our children. And I think that we know it, which is why we're so fearful of our we're so fearful in our parenting roles of our children, because we are literally the stewards of the greatest creations ever, right? Like there's nothing that an inspired and aspiring black child can't do. If we, if we don't get in the way and we don't crush their spirits, the sky's the limit for them. And I think that that's a hell of a responsibility. And I think that sometimes we get scared of that. Agreed, man. Agreed. Definitely, man. Um, man, uh, Brother Shamar, you've done so much amazing work, man. And I really do appreciate what you've been doing for the community, the Black community, the Black collective, your writing, um, your teaching, everything, man. Um, so when, it, you know, like when we, when we fast forward into the future um, and you're ready to join the ancestors, man, what legacy do you want to leave behind for Black folks, for the Black world? And what do you want us to remember about what, you know, who you were and what you represented? Um. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I really, this village building thing, For the Love of Black Children, what is the campaign to build, build the village that can keep Black children in that space, that inspirational, aspirational space that, I, that we've talked about, right? So it's funny, man, like in Philly right now, uh, we talk about the spirit of the drum, talk about some work that I'm doing with a, a formation called Partners in Peace. And ever since last year, when people were marching and, and you know, they were marching under the banner of the Black Lives Matter thing. And I was like, nah, that's, 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 not, that's not who we are. They could have that. Mm. So we started really talking about this idea of we bring Black life. Mm. And I'm starting to hear, uh, I'm starting to hear that resonate 
in a lot of the circles that I'm in right now, where people are just running with it, like we bring black life, bring black life. Yeah, you need a shirt. You need a shirt for that one, man. We bring black yeah, life. Yeah, and that like that 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 sea change through the language, I think is is for me. You know, if I'm if I'm to be honest, when you start to hear people changing the language because the language then changes the vibration and the expectation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's my thing. It's like we so it these kind of different mantras about bring black life, black love, black loyalty, black life. Um, when you start to hear that become the, the the foundation way that people are organizing. And then, you know, I'm, me and my lady are talking about this thing we're calling the black hole right now. Um, and hole stands for all of us, right? This idea mm-hmm. of how do we create these, these refuges or these places where warriors heal such that they come back and help the village become whole. Mm. So you got to heal the warriors so that the village becomes whole. And that work is, is really what I'm hoping the last few decades of my existence gets to focus on. And that is substantial enough work that is, is, is carried forward in some particular way, like warrior healing in order to make the village whole and what what are the techniques and the technologies um that we need to offer um in order to make that happen mm-hmm. man yeah i think again man you have just a, a whole litany of um information and wisdom that you you have you know organized for black folks and like i said i really appreciate that and it's helped me tremendously, like just through my own journey and, you know, reading your book. And before we we finish off um, and before I ask you for your favorite quote, I did want to just read this uh, real quick. Uh, this was kind of the piece that really kind of made me think about, you know, what I was doing as a black adult and what I needed to do. So, you know, this, this was it right here. And uh, this is one of your poems in the book called, um, you know, Why Our Children Hate You. Um, so you don't know them. You don't speak to them. You don't believe them. You don't trust them. You don't listen to them. You don't warn them. You don't protect them. You don't worship them. You don't claim them. You don't guide them. You don't love them. You push them. You deceive them. You doubt them. You use them. You betray them. You expose them. You blame them. You mock them. You ignore them. You fear them. You hate them. Yet they are our children. They are us, and they are our only future, our only hope. It seems we are the only species who have forgotten their importance. So, yeah, I just, you know, definitely wanted to thank you for that passage, man. And that brought light to my responsibilities, like as a Black adult and what I needed to do, man, especially at the moment, you know, that I was in. But, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that. And shout out to, you know, my co-author, uh, my brother, Butch Slaughter. We, we teamed up and wrote that. Um, and, you know, we claim it as a collective uh, collective effort, man. So, you know, we, we don't, we tend not to differentiate, you know, who wrote what passage where. It was just a, a amalgamation of a lot of different things we were working on. And, and it came together. I give him credit because he was the driving force behind saying, you know, we need to make this into a book. Because I never would have did it. You know, there was stuff I had written for his magazine or I had written, you know, just doing the work that I was doing as a consultant or whatever. But he was like, yo, man, we, we have something to say. 
mm-hmm. and we we need to put this out in the book and and you know i'm starting to hear more even now man like i'm starting to hear more and more people like y'all need to republish that y'all need to do a second edition y'all need to get this back out in the, in the universe so shout out you know to, to brother butch for 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 pushing that to be a thing and i'm looking forward to the for the love of black children because you know our goal right now is to offer a set of uh practices Mm-hmm. An ecology of practices that we can bring love back to our village. And yes, sir. I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, so uh, for those that are like kind of interested in, you know, reaching out to you um, for whatever, for information or whatever, or interested in kind of looking up, you know, the, the, the radio program you do and some of the stuff that you do, where can they find you? All right, so the radio program, Groundings, Evolutions, and Elevations with Brother Shamari. That's every Friday from 1 to 4 p.m. And again, Sundays, another episode, 6 to 8 p.m. And we're at um, Word Radio, which is WURD Radio in Philly. Dials The dial numbers are 96.1 FM, 900 AM. But we also, you can live stream on our website, from our website, www dot wurdradio.com so that's one way of getting at me my email address for anything radio related is brother shamari and shamari is s-h-o-m-a-r-i at wordradio.com um you know if you want to if you're interested in the spirit of the drum stuff just go to our facebook page spirit of the drum uh, out of philadelphia brother wyset um i have a formation that's evolving right now our website is uh bringblacklife.org if you want to get a sense of the community work um on the groundwork that i'm a part of bringblacklife.org um and my general email address is brothershamari at gmail.com so if people want to reach out ask me any other questions ask me about getting the book if you want to download uh the first edition of Why Our Children Hate Us uh, is on our website, whyourchildrenhateus.com. And then, um, you know, keep your ear to the ground for uh, volume two, For the Love of Black Children, Strategies to Overcome That Hate. And that'll be available at the website, fortheloveofblackchildren.com. And those are the best ways to get at me. So all of that's coming and and. No, thank you, my brother, for having yes. us, having me here. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. The pleasure was all ours. And we will definitely be doing a part two when we read For the Love of Black Children, which I'm sure is going to be just, just as exceptional as mm-hmm. why our children hate us. So, again, man, thank you so much, man, for all the work that you're doing um, for us going above and beyond. Um, and uh, one more favorite we would ask before you leave, if you can leave us with your favorite quote and what it means to you. Uh, yeah, my, my favorite quote is the one I, my, my fail safe is by Franz Fanon. Um, you know, and Franz Fanon was one of the first authors who I studied, you know, in, in the name of kind of black consciousness. A lot of people started with Malcolm X and autobiography, but it was a class I took and Franz Fanon was one of the first people I was exposed to. And I, I always remember his quote. Each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it. 
And so I was working with a, a group of young people and we always use that, 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 that mantra, each generation must out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, fulfill it or betray it. We choose to fulfill it. And that was always mm. our mantra going forward. So that's my most memorable quote. There it is, man. There it is. Um, we choose to fulfill it as well, man. So appreciate that one. Um, thank you guys for listening to the program. I hope that you are inspired as I am today. And don't just be inspired, but think about your connection and your relationship to Black children. And um, it's not too late to change. You know what I'm saying? If there's some habits, some behaviors that you know are not so favorable and um, some things that can be improved, we, we gave you a whole list of things that you can do. Um, so let's let's make it better and let's build strong Black adults. All right. Um, and of course, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.